0: Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there were captors required us of songs, and our tormentors, mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you if I do not set Jerusalem above the highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done unto us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock.
1: Um... So before I pray, I do just want to say, um, this sermon's pretty heavy. Like this sermon's super heavy, actually. Um, So I don't know what that means to you specifically, whoever's watching this. Um, I did try to be mindful of my notes and not include anything that could be potentially triggering to anyone with some kind of trauma. But I do genuinely just want to say, like, this is a difficult sermon. Like, this is a difficult sermon for me to prepare. It's a difficult sermon on a very difficult passage. And uh, I just want everyone to be aware of that before we jump into it, because it's going to be a bumpy one, you know. So, uh, let's take some time to pray, and uh, we'll jump into it. Dear Lord, um, God, I I appreciate every moment that you spent with me uh, as I was just trying to fill in the gaps for what on earth I'm supposed to say to a psalm like this, uh, to try to understand, deepen our understanding and our empathy, and, and yet also be able to call Call something what it is to. Uh, I just pray that this would be a sermon of healing, uh, as, as odd as that sounds. It's saying this is a sermon that talks about babies being killed. I pray this would be a song about a, a psalm of healing and a sermon of healing, and that she would speak uh, to each and every person here uh, in a way that she would be pleased with. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, so. Quick preface first, or maybe not a preface, maybe just a quick little illustration. Um, It's not super uncommon to hear someone say something like, uh, Christians in America are being unfairly persecuted. Um, There's a lot that could be offered about that statement. But when I hear it, it, it tends to make me think of the Coptic Christian. Now, most people aren't super familiar with the Coptics. Uh, It's a tradition that uh, basically separated from mainstream Christianity about a thousand years before the Protestant Reformation happened. So there was uh, a lot of time and a lot of distance in geography that separates us from the Coptics. They're mostly in Egypt, although they do have congregations in North Africa and throughout the Middle East. Um, And they have a very rich tradition, and they are, as far as I could tell from the time I spent mostly just chasing rabbit trails through their theology, they are just as much as brothers and sisters in the faith as as you and I could be. However, as you can imagine, with them being uh, devout, very historical Christians living in the the place of geography that they're in, it it has opened them to a lot of very genuine, very real persecution. Um, I 100% believe that it's possible for Christians and Muslims to coexist with each other in any given nation, even where Muslims may be a a population, have a, a majority population. But In this specific instance, Coptics have just historically been the the victims of lots and lots of persecution. They've had, they're they're definitely the target of a lot of uh, militant extremist groups that exist in those countries. They've had churches burned down. They've had shootings occur where they would die, sometimes in the dozens. There were stories uh, or even accounts of young Coptic girls being kidnapped and taken to different countries and married off at a young age and forced to convert away from Christianity. Uh, If any of us had any familiarity with Coptics, it was probably because in 2015, ISIS released a video on the internet where they took 22 Coptic Christians that they had kidnapped to the beach and murdered them on camera and shared it with the world. So when I think of persecution, this is a big example that I think of. Could you imagine not just being a witness of such crimes, but, but to experience it directly? To live under the oppression of an angry and intolerant ruler and to see your brothers murdered and your, your place of worship destroyed and your daughters kidnapped and taken away to a strange land. Could you imagine something like that? The author of the psalm that we just read did not have to imagine that. For him, that was his reality. Before we jump into this, uh, the verses here, I do want to give some context. A lot of the psalms that we think of, you know, we know their songs, you know, they were sung in worship and in congregations. A lot of them we attribute to David, who, of course, was a king and he was a good king. And he was a king when Israel was doing pretty well for itself. This was not during the time of David that this psalm that we just read was written. It was about 400 years later in a time in Israel's history called the Babylonian captivity. And to make a very, very long story short, what essentially happened was Babylon, which was a large empire, overtook uh, the southern part of Israel, which is where the which is where Jerusalem and where the temple were, and they overwhelmed them with with military force. There were slaughters left and right, and and the second siege that the Babylonians committed on Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple. Which even if you're not super super familiar with like every detail of the Old Testament destroying the temple it's like it's like if you woke up one day and every church in the world had burned down but worse like that's how terrible of a thing it was that the temple was destroyed it was literally the symbol for the nation of Israel that god was present with them like god's literal presence dwelt within the temple for the temple to be destroyed it was like god just packed his bags and left or worse that these people killed the presence of God for them. That's how bad it was under Babylon. And that's when this author is writing this song. And all things considered, it's actually a very beautiful song. If you look at the layout of it, if you look at it, like I, you know, uh, uh, obvious, you know, uh, caveat and disclaimers and asterisks there but i would say this is an extremely beautiful very poetic psalm just looking at the first lines by the rivers of babylon there we sat down we wept when we remembered zion it's it's a psalm of of deep deep sadness but but not just that See, the the entire time that Israel was captive in Babylon was about 60 years, which means that the person who's writing this, it's a very good chance that not only were they in Babylon, they probably saw the temple get destroyed. They probably saw the murders and the abductions and all the horrible things that were happening during that time period. And so he's saying, like, we remembered our home. We remembered the place that God gave us. And we remember that it was taken away from us. Now the elephant in the room, uh, the like megaton elephants in the room is not the first verse that I just read. It's the last verse, which I'll cover again. Happy is the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. That is not as poetic and pretty as the other verses that we talked about. That's the one that literally ends the song. The song just ends right there. That's a very abrupt ending for a song. And it's jarring. And it's uncomfortable. It's meant to be, I think. One thing that I don't think that this psalm is, is uh, above all else, anti-babies. I think that when you apply what the psalmist was experiencing what israel as a nation was experiencing this is meant to be a psalm of deep painful mourning like genuine crushing depressing affected by trauma grief sorrow mourning like god look at what they did to us look at look at where we are why am i why am i not in the promised land that you offered to me god why why am i so far away why are my brothers dead and my sisters taken from me it's a very passionate painful psalm and the, the the inclusion of this last verse which i mean essentially we're going to spend a lot of time kind of working through i i just had to like really really just mull over this constantly over the past week and the question that i asked myself was like like why infants right like why why is it why happy the one who dashes the infants of the Babylonians against the rock. Why not the soldiers? Why not happy? The one who dashes the able-bodied men against the rocks, right? Like why not the one who rounds up all the soldiers who did the siege where they burned down our temple? Why not those guys on the rocks, right? Why not the leadership? Like why the infants, why the infants, the innocent ones, the defenseless ones. And I think that it's actually the defenselessness of it that, that is is meaning to pack the punch and the impact of this line. I need to say now, and I'll probably say several times over, I am not for the type of violence that is, that is mentioned in this line. I don't think any of us can be. I don't think any of us can rightfully say, yes, seeking out to destroy the children of our enemies is a rightful thing to do. I, I don't think so. But I think that if we just spit at that comment, and act out of uh such such uh, disgust that we're gonna miss a whole lot here and that's very important we can't miss that honestly when i think about it i think any i think any parents here would say um yeah if, if something devastating happened i would rather me than my child right Like if 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 they had to choose, like, yeah, yeah, if if some dude wants to wants to come in my house and you know, and I and I have to get hurt, that's fine, but don't touch my child, right? Like there's something about children which is intrinsically like you want to protect them. There's a care there. So the fact that infants are so defenseless, that's the type of wound that this author is wanting to inflict on the Babylonians, which is you you did this to me. You hurt me in this way, and I want to do the exact same thing to you. I want you to know how I felt. I want you to feel exactly how I felt. I want the wound that we feel every day. I want you to know it. I want you to know it well, just how much damage you did to us. That's what I think he's trying to say here. So what do we do with this song? (laughs) What do we do with this psalm? Well, um, I think most of that will hopefully be discussed, because um, I'm really hoping for some super fruitful discussions in your micro churches today. But uh, to give you, I want to give three really, really quick points just to hopefully lay a lay a nice, uh, good good foundation for everyone uh, as a launching pad for that discussion. Um, so, just three very quick points about this uh, about this psalm. The first one is that this Psalm gives a voice to the victims of evil. This Psalm gives a voice to the victims of evil. Now, I think that I've been struggling with this word. I'm not even sure if I actually wanna use it, but I think that we as Americans are very, very fortunate to have what we have in terms of the systems around us in dealing with injustice. If some guy walks into my front my my living room and takes my television and walks out I can call the police and he will get that TV and bring it back to me right like on paper all of that is supposed to happen If I'm at work and my boss starts I don't know like throwing eggs at my desk and getting yolk and runny gross mess everywhere. I can call the boss ahead of him and be like, Greg is tripping dude, can you like tell him not to do this? Like there is this idea that there are checks and balances in the systems that we exist in to where injustice has a way to be checked. This is not something they could experience. When this man had been taken forcibly to a land not his own and then mocked after he witnessed so much evil There was no police force he could call. There was no congressman he could write an email to. He was literally trapped where the highest level of appealing, that the only one that was reasonable for him was God. He wanted justice and so he sought out the only real person who was willing and able to judge the evil act. And so, Like, how does that how does that tie in? So but again, I think the first point that I'm trying to make is that this psalm is actually giving a voice to the victims of evil. And I want to read a really quick quote uh, from Charles Spurgeon when he's kind of writing a little commentary about this, because our natural thought is to be repulsed by this. Our natural thought is to say, well, hold, hold, hold on there, songwriter guy. I think that's a little bit too far. I think you're going a little bit too far with this, this, you know, impassioned plea. I think you need to cool it down and, and take a breath. What Spurgeon says is this. Let those who find fault with this, who have never seen their temple burned, their city ruined, their wives ravished, and after children slain, they might not perhaps be quite so velvet mouthed. If they had suffered after this fashion. So I'm gonna wanna digest that for a little bit. Cause I, I think it's fascinating that within the psalms, there's a lot of psalms that are written and designed to kind of meet us where we are, like to kind of meet us in the ugly parts of our lives and then and then usher us into worship. Because we can look through psalms, aside from this one, and see psalms that say things that are not really correct or something that we would find ourselves praying to God. If we look at Psalm 44, we can see this, this, this psalm accuses God of being asleep. He says, you've been asleep to your people. You sold us for a small price, and you just sold us away to be slaughtered and killed. These are brutal a- accusations against God. Psalm 88 says, God, why are you rejecting and hiding yourself from me? God, you are not my closest friend, but darkness is my closest friend. You see that like psalms become like this like safe place where the authors feel an ability to vent and to say things that are kind of brutal and kind of raw and intense, but they're open and they're honest and they're genuine. I think that I personally fall into the habit of turning my prayers into these like bland regurgitations of truth. These like empty, shallow sermons at times where it's like I'm not really feeling a certain way, but I'll just be like, yeah, but God, I know you're good either way. So I'm really happy that you're just uh, doing all these things for me when in reality, I want to be like, God, why are you poking me with a stick right now? Like, why are you so ruthless to me? So what does that mean? I think that this psalm, in a way, is allowing those who have been downtrodden by some legitimate, awful, horrible crimes, legitimate evil, and it's giving them the room to be like, no, you can be honest when you're praying to God. You can actually say how you feel. You don't have to, to filter that. Because I, I, I don't think God's ears are are too sensitive for our words, you know. Like God like another psalm says God is near to the brokenhearted. Well, I would say what's the point of God being near to the brokenhearted if he can't tolerate what they have to say? I think this is an invitation for those who are just terribly terribly wounded to speak to him and to speak honestly to him. That's the first point. The second is that this psalm reminds us who God is, or at least one part. When God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments, he had a very there's a very famous description of himself, you know? He says, the, I am the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. I hear the first half of that passage all the time, all the time. Slow to anger, abounding in love. Sounds like a K-Love song, you know, sounds great. But I don't usually hear the second half of it. And it's not because they negate each other. God is compassionate and gracious. God is slow to anger God is loving and abounding in love, He's forgiving all of these things. Like we, we would not be here if not for these traits that God carries. But for God to really be merciful, meaning He's having mercy on something that does not deserve mercy he has to have a sense of justice that sees that sin and wrongdoing and evil-doing and all these things that we're talking about need to be punished. Otherwise, He's not really merciful, He's just indifferent. He just doesn't care about sin that much, if that's the case. Which would really be a bummer, considering Jesus had to suffer on a cross so that we could have our sins removed from us. So there is this element of this psalm that kind of reminds us that this psalmist wanting wanting the day of, of comeuppance for the people that have horribly crushed and embarrassed and torn down his nation, his family, it's not really that wrong to want justice. In fact, it's not wrong at all. It can be a difficult pill to swallow because right here it's obviously present in very bold and brutal fashion. But the idea of calling God the judge of evil isn't misguided at all because we see this. We see it all over the Old Testament. And even in the Revelation, we see that Jesus is going to be returning in order to punish sin that has not been punished yet. Honestly, I'm not sure there's a more helpless feeling in the world than seeing evil that has directly affected you go unpunished. People who manipulate and do awful, exploitative things. People who just generally abuse and destroy. These people are not really monsters because in a way they're very much human. I think it's an encouragement to remember this though. We, we, I'm sure all of us can pull a story out of our hats of some person who maybe in the famous spotlight did some pretty abysmal things and just kind of, you know, skated off scot-free, whether they moved to a country that wouldn't indict them, or maybe the jury was sympathetic or the judge was sympathetic, or maybe they never got caught at all. Maybe we never even learned their name. It's encouraging that they can escape governments and they can escape judges, but they can't escape God. It's a promise that give us hope, but should also, in a way, kind of make us tremble. And the last point I wanna make is that this psalm does not allow us to hate our enemies. It should be as clear as day. Again, I have not been endorsing any of this kind of behavior, but to make it very clear, this psalm does not allow us to hate our enemies. Even a longing for justice does not allow us to hate our enemies. I think a lot of the, the, uh, the book of Jonah. And it's so funny because Jonah is always kind of painted as this like cartoony, like goofy, like Looney Tunes-esque adventure where it's just so silly. Like God's like, hey, Jonah, do that. And he's like, I'm not gonna do that. And then like he gets eaten by a whale. And then he's like, all right, fine, you got me. Like, it's just so silly. But if you look at it through that, like very um, learned it in children's church when I was six way, you're missing so much. What did God ask Jonah to do? He asked Jonah to preach to a people group. Who were the people? They were the Ninevites. Why is that important? Because Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And Assyria was up there with Babylon as longtime enemies of Israel that had done a lot of very twisted and ugly and evil things to Israel. So Jonah hearing, "Hey, you got to go preach to them. Preach to them repentance because if they repent, then I'm going to forgive them and I'm going to make their country flourish." And Jonah's like, "No. I don't want I don't want them to repent. I don't want them to have the opportunity to do that." <coughs> so he ran. And then God sent a whale for him, or a big fish, depends on your translation. The story illustrates for us that this sense of longing for righteous wrath can actually swing too far in one direction. The irony is that as soon as we pray for God to destroy all the wicked in the world, it's kind of like burning a house down from the inside because I would never attempt to equate victims of great evil with the, the, what is it? The, doers of the great evil because i I do think there is a necessity for a line to be crossed but i also think that when we desire too much for a righteousness to come down and smite someone over there who has wronged us it can transform into a very toxic type of self-righteousness that makes us think that because we've experienced great evil we are somehow immune to it unchecked that kind of outrage can turn us into jonahs who forget that while there was blood on our enemies' hands, there was kind of blood on our hands too. Even when we think of Jesus, like, it's, it's incredible. We have to imagine almost that he came to earth fully aware that he loved, compassionately, beautifully loved every human being on the planet, and he would die to save them. But he also knew that when he came back around the second time, he would come to judge and he would come to judge with wrath. I think that's a balance we have to try and strike. I said this before. This was a very, very weird sermon for me to prepare. It's very, very difficult, very, very complicated, wanting to um, kind of defend the perspective of this psalmist while, of course, not defending infanticide. Very important balance to strike, I've heard. And, like, this week was just so weird. I've told some of you guys. Like, I, I did some reading about the Coptic so I could do the illustration earlier. I also spent a lot of time learning about the Armenian Genocide, which was absolutely horrible and people don't talk about it enough. And then earlier today, I watched a video where a man was at a trial where um, his, uh, his daughter had been sexually assaulted by uh, a coach and he was politely asking the judge if he could have just five minutes with this man who'd been found guilty of harming his daughter, very politely, very stoically. And then of course he charged after him and court officials tackled him before he got a hand on him. But just like, I just feel so grounded by all of this. Like what, like what a gruesome world we live in, honestly. What a gruesome world we live in. And I know that some of us will inevitably feel it more than others. It's not fair. It just is, unfortunately. And it's really hard. And it's really upsetting. And this psalm is like some weird, ugly memorial in a weird and ugly world that's telling us that we can pray honestly to God and he can hear us. It's telling us that just, and, and just as a spoiler, everything that he said, a couple, maybe, I don't know, maybe a few decades after he prayed this prayer, Persia came through and he did what they asked. Persia judged Babylon in the way that they deserved to get judged. But this is just tragedy for tragedy, right? It doesn't get any easier. And so I just love the first verse of this psalm I do because i think we all recognize it by the rivers of babylon there we sat down and we wept when we remembered zion because zion isn't isn't just israel zion is 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 god it's presence with god it's unity with god it's oneness with god and babylon incredibly became a symbol of all that's evil. If you look at how Babylon is referred to in Revelation, it's not just a nation anymore. It's, it's all of evil. It's all that is destroying what is good. And so there's a weight that we all feel. We are all by the rivers of Babylon, weeping, longing for Zion. And we're just, we're just waiting. We're just waiting and praying and singing and so yeah (laughs) I just you got when you got some stuff to pray to God just rip off the filter dude Um, speak he'll listen and he will meet us in this uh, in this feeling so yeah
2: well this might feel like kind of a weird song to sing right now but uh, I thought it was really apt uh, to go where it need, where we need to be because um, this is exactly what we need um, from God. We need somebody we can come to. A, a good father isn't somebody that is just really nice all the time. A good father is somebody that you know you can come to. A good father is, is somebody that can handle everything that you haven't figured out and all the things you do wrong and the ways you get angry and he responds in in love and and, uh, brings us back to center Um, so let's sing this together
0: You're a good, good fight. It's
2: Father, we thank you that um, you do not invite us to come to you and, and censor ourselves and be afraid of not being good enough or not reacting in the right way. We thank you that you also don't tell us that anger is evil. You call us into seeing things like you. You call us to understand your heart. And to do that means that we have to see evil for what it is, and we should be enraged by it. But God, I pray that um, as we get closer to your heart, we also are are formed and reformed to mimic the love that you have in the face of evil, and not that justice doesn't end up happening, but that you have compassion and you have mercy, and that anger and hate and malice is not is not the last word that your judge your judgment is mercy your judgment is love and that's what you call us into so we help we pray that you just help us navigate that god and we want to glorify you in that